Folks, welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. My question for all of you today is, what is your measure of success? For this host, it is to enlighten, not through my own pontifications, but the words of my guests. My guests often communicate through instrumental music, which at one time in this country was flourishing, with hotbeds of regional jazz, soul, and blues, intermeshed with the opportunity for audiences to witness the music firsthand. Jazz's birthplace is in Harlem, and a vibrant local scene continues to this day. One of the most important contributors to this prolonged vibe is my guest. He was a district attorney who needed to get something out of his system, that according to Al Cohn and Zoot Sims. So he became one of the most prolific promoters of jazz that the city has ever seen. Pure jazz with musicians who cultivated the fertile soil of Manhattan. Bucky Pizzarelli and Milt Hinton. Buddy Rich and Sonny Fortune. Tributes to Bird and George Ween. And a dedication to making sure somehow that his love of the music gets passed along to future generations. Jack Kleinsinger, welcome to the Jake Feinberg hey, Show. how are you? A couple of corrections, okay? I was assistant attorney general for the state of New York. Uh, not district attorney. That's that's a major, that's a big important thing. Thank you. Okay, and uh, I don't agree that the birthplace of jazz was Harlem. Uh, in fact, I'm one of these people who doesn't believe there was a birthplace of jazz. Uh, my argument with Ken Burns, who says it all started in New Orleans, is that you know in Europe in the same time. Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli were playing. Uh, if you listen to some klezmer music and even some Irish music, I discovered uh, you hear elements of jazz as, as, as close as anything. And uh, Harlem was late. Harlem was late in the game. Uh, New Orleans and Chicago, had Kansas City had jazz scenes first. Uh, musicians gravitated from these southern cities and indeed, Harlem was a hotbed, uh, which sadly it is not at the moment. Uh, in fact, one of the few la- one of the few remaining jazz clubs, uh, Lennox Lounge, just closed, and I'm heartbroken about that. And there's almost no jazz in Harlem today. Uh, people are not jumping at the Woodside or stopping at the Savoy or uh, <laughs> right. even right. celebrating at the Apollo anymore. And uh, I have I have a great Apollo story, which I will tell you later. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I think... Well, you, now, if you want. No, 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 uh, I, 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 I want to go back. I, I think it's, I, I think it's something, you know, it's, it, I said it in, in pretty blasé fashion, you know, that, that Harlem was the birthplace. And I, I think that what I'm, what I really probably should have said was that, uh, you know, I, I'm curious, in my mind, uh, one thing that made jazz uh, so elastic and <clears throat> allowed it to spread into... Uh, all different idioms of music was the fact that um, many African Americans migrated to Harlem because there was an Afrocentric approach to the music, which I think that's what jazz is. And I wonder... You know that they played in clubs that blacks couldn't get into. The Cotton Club would not admit blacks. Uh, When they finally did, they admitted them, uh, but they sat them behind poles. Uh, The Harlem scene was not an integrated scene, uh, which is interesting, which is very interesting. The Navy tried to close the Savoy Ball. 
positive <laughs> that their fellows were picking up venereal disease. Uh, it, 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 the, the Harlem scene is a strange scene. And uh, interestingly enough, my next concert, which celebrates 40 years of, Harlem, of highlights and jazz, features the Harlem Blues and Jazz Band, which is a band made up of uh, veterans of the great swing bands. Uh, Art Barron is going to be playing. He was one of the last people Duke Ellington ever hired. Jackie Williams is going to be playing, who was the drummer of choice for Roy Eldridge and later Doc Cheatham. Uh, we've got some wonderful people on that show. And, uh, and it's, it, it's just so fitting that it's the Harlem Blues and Jazz Band, and uh, that band has existed, but with differing personnel, uh, also for 40 years. And their tenor player, Fred Staten, who's the older brother of Dakota Staten, is going to celebrate his 98th birthday the night of the concert. So that's, that's pretty exciting. I want to I want to go back to the the beginnings of your uh, of your your career in music because you had you were really uh, I think it's a really compelling story you, you know you you had a pretty good gig obviously I I, I didn't I thought it was yeah you know it was you were the assistant attorney general talk about walking away what is your as far as success was concerned I mean you could have sat there and made a great living had a tremendous amount of political clout and really had a lot of prestige, but you chose to do something that was in your soul. I'd like you to take my audience through what that evolutionary process in that in that part of your life. Well, I, uh, for a number of years, I had the best of both worlds. I had a, a day job and a great hobby. And I stayed at the Attorney General's office until I was 55. Uh, I've been retired 21 years ago. You can do the math and figure out how old I am. But I did, I did it simultaneously. Uh, from nine to five, I wore, uh, it's, I don't want to say Clark Kent Superman, but I wore one type of uniform and was in one world. <laughs> and then in the evening, I was in another one. Right. And I saved my sanity. Uh, it, was, it was cheap therapy. And I wasn't crazy about my job at that point. Uh, the, the novelty had worn out. Uh, I was trying cases. I was uh, predominantly a trial lawyer for the Attorney General's office. And, uh, you know, the, the excitement had gone out of it sometime earlier. So back in 1973, uh, I was frequenting jazz clubs almost every night. And a number of musicians, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli and a clarinetist, Phil Bodner and Zoot Sims, the saxophonist, grabbed me one night and said, you know, you're comfortable with musicians and you love the music. Why don't you take over a club or rent the hall, put on concerts, and get it out of your system? And, you know, this registered in the back of my mind. And uh, a couple of months later, I was in an off-Broadway theater, and I thought to myself, geez, it's 299 seats, and they don't perform on Monday night. This would be a great place for a jazz concert. So uh, I, I did exactly that, yeah. and I called Zoot Sims and Bucky Pizzarelli and the people who, you know, had suggested it in the first place, and uh, we were off and running. I rented the Theater de Lise, uh, which is still standing on Christopher Street, uh, 
lodge now called the Lucia Lortel Theater. And uh, I rented it for two shows. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was going to last 40 years, but I didn't want to have just one. I, I wanted to have two shows, a modern show and a traditional show. Uh, and uh, For the audience, can you, can you explain we, modern and traditional? Yeah. Uh, you can almost explain it with a timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, music before 1950, music after 1950. But by modern, I mean uh, what's commonly called bebop. Mm -hmm. and, uh, more progressive music uh, by traditional. I encompass traditional as uh, Dixieland and swing. So the, the earliest style. This is the style that was popular when jazz was America's popular music. Of course. It was perhaps less cerebral, but it was something that the average person could grab onto and enjoy. People danced to it. Uh, the popular songs of the day were played by jazz musicians, uh, as opposed to the more modern era where uh, people wrote their own songs although often based on the chords of popular songs. And uh, we had two shows, and jazz concerts were novelty at the time. Uh, there were occasional concerts at Carnegie Hall, but not many, maybe four a year, five a year. And there was jazz at the Philharmonic, which toured colleges and, uh, and, and played in just about every city. Uh, but those were one-night things. The idea of a concert series uh, was something new. And we predate Jazz at Lincoln Center and the 92nd Street Y and every other series you can think of. Uh, at the time, the jazz critics for the three papers loved it. They, they thought this was sensational, that once a month there was going to be a great jazz concert featuring, you know, name artists, mainstream artists, but not playing with their own groups, playing in a jam session format. Uh, and uh, we got wonderful press, which almost cost me my job. Uh, yeah, <laughs> every, can we, can we talk, uh, that is one of the, let, let's go through that story. story. Yeah. Which said, prosecutor by day, jazz maven <laughs> by night, or something like that. <laughs> And the attorney general was not happy. Uh, he called me and he said, you know, you're making it look like uh, we run a clown show here and you don't have enough work to do to keep you busy. And I absolutely forbid you to use your title, assistant attorney general, in any of your publicity. All right. You know, it, it, it's his shop. <laughs> it's a political job. Right. It hangs by a thread. Right. Uh, they had an undated letter of resignation. When you first signed up for this job, uh, all they had to do was put a date on it, and then they'd say so-and-so tended his resignation, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I followed his edict. And... Uh, at that time, there was a very popular talk show in New York, which later went coast to coast, Joe Franklin. In fact, Joe is still on the radio in his 90s. And, you know, to Joe, the story was exactly that, that I did one thing during the day and then did jazz concerts at night. You know? So I warned him. I said, Joe, please, please, please don't use my title. And he was good about it. He just introduced me as a, an 
an attorney in government, <laughs> which is a vague term. It could be state government, <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't specific. Right. Unfortunately, the attorney general himself went on Joe Franklin's show two weeks later. And the first words out of Joe's mouth is, oh, we had one of your assistants down here, the kid runs a great jazz concert, oh, blah, boy. blah, blah. Oh, boy. So <laughs> I got called in the next morning, and uh, the attorney general said, uh, Jack, what are you going to do if I make you choose between these concerts and your job? And I thought for a minute, I said, don't do that, sir. He said, why not? I said, well, obviously I'm going to choose my job. I went to college. I went to law school. It's my profession. However, my press agent will have to issue a statement that we're canceling the rest of our concerts and uh, breaking our contracts with musicians because the attorney general of the state of New York feels it's undignified for a member of his staff to promote America's black art form. And I said the magic word, uh, to make, make a short story out of it. I kept my job, I kept doing the concerts. Uh, I did not get a raise for four years, even when every other state attorney across the board was given a raise. But you, but that, but, but... Did, but I wasn't fired. No, and, and because you were able to... Um, keep the sanctuary of the highlights and jazz concerts, that in some ways, uh, uh, yeah. you, know, you, you you could swallow that and be like, I'm okay with that, you know, because I'm doing, I'm, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I was having fun. And, but I just uh, want to be, I want to be clear. It's fun. No, I want to be clear about fun for me, Jake. I want to be You know, I am yeah. it. I get on stage, and uh, one night a month, it's opening night. Uh, there's a show in my head of how I think it's going to sound, but, you know, until it actually happens, uh, it's, it's a mystery, and it's a lot of fun. It's really a lot of fun, and it's, it's, it's my hobby, and it's become my life. I've been retired from law since 1991, so, uh, you know, this is what I do now uh, exclusively. How? And I've, I, I've had so much fun. How is it that... Um... <laughs> From your perspective, I could not ask a better person for uh, uh, about this. But you said the magic word to your boss, and that was yeah. black art form. Why, um, as you look at it today, is the word jazz? Uh, is it still in a? In a I mean, you clearly uh, still hold concerts, and you bring in younger. Younger cats from all over the I don't I don't believe it was ever a black art form. I said that because politically mm -hmm. uh, it was a way of getting his attention. Right. Uh, there have been white players, you know, Joe, Jelly Roll Morton, Dick Spiderwick, you know, since the earliest days, and again, the European players we spoke about. Uh, neither do I think it's an exclusively American art form uh, like Ken Burns does. You know, it was nice. He did his series of jazz programs, and they were wonderful. But he tried to relate changes, changes in jazz to the Depression and World War II and things like that, and that's nonsensical. You know, Louis Armstrong would have been a genius, no matter what was going on politically. <laughs> uh, Dizzy and Bird would have come up with bebop. I don't think the fact that 
his genius. But it's also not. We would like to think it, it's just American. It's not. You're, you, your, your rationale is that it's, it's, a, it's a blending of European uh, and, uh, and... Everything. Afro-Cuban. Afro yes. Uh, Brazilian. Uh, there's so much that goes into it. Uh, I mentioned Klezma before. Uh, I did a show a few years ago, Jazz slash Salsa slash Klezma and Other Delights. And I had the Latin percussionist Ray Bernetto and his group and Clark Terry and his band. And we brought in uh, David Amram's Middle Eastern Trio, mm, mm. which has a bazooki and an oud, and Andy Statman, who's the probably the premier klezmer clarinetist in the world even today, uh, was a surprise guest on that show. And... I didn't just have one group following another following another. I did a lot of mix and match. And there were a lot of times that all three were on stage together, finding a common ground. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And, you know, you, you said to yourself, my God, you know, the, the uh, Latin influence in jazz goes way back to Jelly Roll Morton. He called it the Spanish tinge. And the Klezmer thing, uh, you, you hear it in, in so many musicians, not just clarinetists, but uh, certainly the clarinetist, Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw. And, uh, it, it's exciting music. It's folk music. And jazz has borrowed from all of that, just as it, it, it's borrowed from the Western European tradition. You, I mean, uh, people would think jazz began in Africa. That's nonsense. Uh, there's a Western classical influence and even the earliest jazz, ragtime, uh, was was very formal, uh, structured music. But there was so a period it, it of there was from everyone, right? But there was a connotation. Uh, it was it was a veil. It was more than veiled. I mean, when you talk to uh, someone like uh, uh, Big Black, uh, you know, the perc mm -hmm. the African percussionist, where you know, I mean, jazz. They they added the white press corps added the ZZ because originally it was jazz J A S S meaning if you want to go, you want to go to the brothel to see this kind of music you want to get some you want to get some tail so there was this connotation that it was this black music sort of debaucherous kind of music what what do, what do you say to people that I mean because you talk to someone like Big Black and he uh, I mean, he believes the word jazz came off just so that it would be more uh, palatable for white audiences. That's an interesting theory. I've never heard of that, but, but uh, that's an interesting theory, and I got to think that one through. <laughs> Spoken uh, like a true lawyer. I don't have. I don't have an answer. <laughs> uh, certainly, yeah. certainly, there is a tradition of black musicians and performers entertaining for whites. It goes way back to people. Performing in the streets. Right. Uh, after slavery, uh, one of the one of the reasons New Orleans and places like that had so many musicians is these people realized that they could entertain. Uh, Louisiana has a very interesting history. It was French, and on Sunday they used to give the slaves the day off. I mean, think about that for a minute. So they would congregate and very often reunite with members of their families that were on other plantations, other homesteads. And they didn't 
have money to go to a show or anything else. So what did they do? They sang, they danced, they played homemade instruments in what was known as Congo Square. And whites would come and watch and enjoy it. So when slavery ended, these people realized that they had a marketable skill. They could perform and white people might pay to see and hear them. And they played at parades and funerals and weddings and everything else. And that's one of the reasons that New Orleans was possibly the first center in America uh, for jazz. You know, that early tradition of, of the slaves performing. Well, and in fact, uh, when I did the interview with uh, the great drummer Joe Chambers, he, he talked about uh, he is a great drummer. the French sold off the the Louisiana Purchase was 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 completed because the French uh, in Congo Square uh, they they had less um, uh, the, less uh, harsh slave tactics and they yeah. and the drummers were starting to communicate uh, through the drum and they were they had lost some control so they brought in yeah that's where the Louisiana Purchase was was done so the United States came in they had much harsher slavery tactics and in fact. Oh, it went down to one day a week, but there's a, I, you know, think about it, giving them a day off, you know, right. it, 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 it's almost comical, uh, yeah. and yet that was the only place that it happened. Talking to Jack Kleinsinger, a uh, tremendous uh, attorney and also an uh, an, <laughs> uh, an incredible, incredible uh, promoter and, and legacy holder, um, Jack uh, I, I don't think that you, pr- you know, the timing of the of of the of the highlights of jazz when when it, when it started. I mean, just if you could, you know, the pre- you got great press, but you, yeah. you think about you know guys you've mentioned, uh, you know, Dizzy, and 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 you know, I, I, you know, thanks to uh, the jazz video guy Brett Premack, he put out some of these amazing clips of this yeah. DVD. Well, you know, nineteen seventy three was an interesting time. Yeah, go ahead. New York because uh, so many of the golden age players were still with us and living in New York. I mean, I could pick up a phone and call Lionel Hampton and Teddy Wilson and, uh, and they were willing to do concerts uh, very inexpensively. Uh, they liked the idea of playing with their, their peers. Uh, it was it was something that was done after hours, certainly, you know, jam session, there's nothing new about it. But uh, they, they enjoyed it. And I had this great wealth of musicians here. You know, you could look in a phone book and find Dickie Wells, <laughs> you know, Buddy Tate. I, I mean, it was just amazing. And it was, for me, very exciting to put performers of different genres together. Uh, I still do that sometimes. A year ago, we had a show with, for instance, Joe Lovano, who's about as modern a player as that you can get, along with Jimmy Heath, you know, the bebop star, mm-hmm. certainly, and Harry Allen, who plays in a swing tradition. Uh, and I put the three of them together, and it was it was magic. It, it exceeded my expectations a hundred times over. I did a show a long time ago with John Faddis meets Doc Cheatham. <laughs> they had known each other. They had never played together. They had never thought they would play together. Uh, 
recently did a show with Phil Woods and Lou Donaldson. Now, you would have thought that those two had played together. They hadn't. And I decided to throw Lou Tobacco in as a surprise guest. We have a surprise guest at every concert. Although sometimes, in addition to the surprise guest I plan on, somebody else makes an appearance. Uh, I had a show once where Jerry Mulligan came from the back of the auditorium. He unwrapped his, his saxophone and marched up the aisle and came on stage and played. Uh, Earl Hines was once in my house. He had come to see UV Blake. Uh, so sometimes you, you really luck out. And, uh, but I guess the, the, yeah, the question they I know they're going to be called on. The question I want to get at is so you had line, you had Hamp, and you had yeah. and, and and the point is that they they wanted to play with their peers, but talk about the effect it had on the young guns, the younger guys. The oh oh, it was wonderful. I used Hampton in a show with at that time McDonald's had a tri-state high school jazz ensemble, and I got the great idea that that band would back Lionel Hampton. Now, in that band at the time was a young drummer named Kenny Washington. Hmm. Kenny wind up playing with Hamp. Uh, it happened a number of times. Uh, Red Rodney uh, performed with, by then they, there was no longer a McDonald's, but there was still a tri-state high school <laughs> jazz ensemble. And their drummer at the time was Greg Hutchison. And Red not only played with him, he later hired him. He heard that he was graduating from high school that year, and he hired him and took him on the road. He was Red's drummer for a year or so. Uh, I always, I'm having Fred Staten, who I told you is turning 98, and one of my surprise guests is going to be a senior at the new school who has already played for me. He's played with people like John Abercrombie and Joe Lovano has taken him under his wing. Stephen Frieda. Stephen just turned 22. So on the same stage, locking horns, so to speak, I got a 98-year-old and a 22-year-old. And That's the, the jazz tradition continues. Uh, I'm very proud of some of the young people who have made their debut at Highlights in Jazz. John Pizzarelli at the age of 15. Uh, Jane Monheit, when she was a freshman at uh, Manhattan School of Music. Kenny Washington again. Joe Saylor, uh, who's a, the drummer now with Jonathan Baptiste. Wonderful drummer. Uh, I mean, that's fun for me. And it's fun. Uh, we had a young guitarist. You may know him because he's got a few CDs out. Jake Herzog. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And he writes a monthly column for guitar player. Well, he was about 20 years old, and I put him up with Bucky Pizzarelli, who was about 80 at the time. And they sounded great together, and they enjoyed each other. And, it, you know, it, it, uh, we don't have the training grounds for musicians we used to have. You know, years ago, a kid would get out of Berkeley or Manhattan School of Music and go work with Woody Herman or Maynard Ferguson or, you know, one of the big bands. And have the training and sit next to some guy who might have been playing for 20 years, 25 years, and learn. We don't have that today. So concerts like mine are one of the few chances where a younger player can get to play with one of the veterans, with one of the older guys. Uh, and I, I, I do that as often 
few producers that if somebody invites me to come to a senior recital, I go. And if I like them, I'll use them. Uh, Joe Alterman, two years ago, was, was graduating from NYU. Wonderful pianist. He invited me to a senior recital. I went and uh, he played highlights. And Joe is doing very, very well. He's played at the Blue Note. He's played at uh, Dizzy's Club. Uh, all our major clubs. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking. What worries me, Jake, mm-hmm. is I see lots of talent out there. I don't see audiences of people that age. Unfortunately, when I go to a club or even my own concerts, uh, the average age is 40 plus. And that worries me. Well, I, you know, my dad, uh, when he goes to your concerts, uh, he always makes note of the fact that you are pleading with the audience to, to get this stuff, uh, get this music uh, into the ears and expose younger peop- uh, younger generations. And I, I mean, it's a conundrum for, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm 34, I'm a veritable youngster myself, and it's just, yeah. you know, and you look at, you know, as a teacher, you look at some of the... I think as I go through this process and I interview a lot of musicians, uh, guys that aren't necessarily even from this country, you know, they talk about this idea of, uh, you know, we things are happening at such a fast clip that you try, you you have no time to absorb what is happening before something new comes along, and so there's no time to marinate in what's going on, collaborations or music or LPs. Good point. Okay, so Good point. so when you have this attention span problem. And really, uh, it's not their fault. They just are not accustomed to listening to intimate human beings playing music together. They're they're used to digital drum tracks, electronic music. So this is really foreign to them. And it's really going, I don't know, and I, I guess that was my point is, you know, my my follow, my question here is for these younger cats who are doing it and that you're you're they're forging that link from the 90-year-old to the 22-year-old, what are the challenges that they have to overcome that were, that were not there when Kenny Washington was under the tutelage of him? Very, very good question, and there is an answer. Uh, they grew up, your, your father, who, of course, I, I remember fondly, and I, I've known God since the 50s, uh, grew up in an era, as did I, where there was one TV set in the house, or one radio. And we listened to what our families were listening to, what our grandparents were listening to. There was a common music that was heard, uh, for better or worse. Today, the eight-year-old has his own iPad, the Mm. 12-year-old has his own thing, and the music business has reached out specifically to that kind of thing. So the chance of a kid even listening to the music that his older brother listens to, if there's a seven or eight year gap, uh, is unlikely, let alone the music that the parents listen to. So where's a kid going to hear jazz? There's almost no music education. New York City, which, which used to be great. Kids used to be able to join an orchestra in their school, and there were instruments for them to learn on and play. There's nothing, none of that anymore. So where are they going to hear jazz? You know, they, I, I have a wonderful friend. 
and Michael Wolf. You know Michael. Of course. He's a great pianist. Oh, yeah. Played with Cannonball Adderley and Sonny Rollins. And, Cal uh, Jader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he's got a group now with Michael Clark, uh, the drummer from the Headhunters, called the Wolf Clark Expedition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has two boys, and they're wonderful kids. They really are. They had a cable TV show for four years called The Naked Brothers Band. And they were very successful. But their demographic was girls 14 and under, let's say. All right, now they're, uh, they're older. The show is off the air. But an older group of girls would listen to the Jonas Brothers, let's say. An older group than that would listen to Kiss. So there's not... Like us, we all heard Ella Fitzgerald. My mother and father loved Ella Fitzgerald. I loved Ella Fitzgerald. If I had had a kid, that kid would have loved Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> right, right, right. Because we were listening right. together. Right, 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 right. And that's a big part of them. I offer at least twice a year, my customers, I tell them, if you bring a kid under 18 and you buy a ticket for yourself, he goes for free, he or she. You know how many people take me up on it? Maybe eight, ten. And we're talking free. Right, so yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I wish I knew the answer. No, I, I, <laughs> I, think, I think what you're, you, in, in, a, in, a, in a macro sense, uh, you're talking about a situation where... Uh, Everybody was listening to the same stuff. It was it was cross generational, and yeah. and now you have everything. You you use the key term uh, with the the wolf kids. They're demographic. It's all about demographics. Marketing came in, and everything. The business model, the efficiency model, has been applied to everything, which is asinine. Because when you have something as esoteric and as free form as music. Um, that is going to create these kind of this kind of stratification that we are currently you know in right now. I mean it, it's and and it, it also is the dumbing down of our society done very intentionally by individuals who want to take symphonies out of the, out of the uh, out of the school systems. And there's a lack of leadership on the part of the uh, of the goal. I forget the term you use, but you know the the, the idea that these older sages. Uh, you know, in, in a sense that they don't have a platform to speak from, and I, I, I'm talking about um, you know Sonny Rollins and uh, yeah. you know and 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 Gary Bartz and and, and the idea that these guys are true. I have never. I mean, as a, as a caveat to the audience here, Jack Kleinsinger has been extremely influential in being able to guide me towards a lot of you know, sort of off-the-beaten-path musicians, uh, guys like Al Gaffa and bigger names like Bernard Purdy. When I interview Bernard Purdy, I mean, you want to talk about humanity. You want to talk, oh. about, you want to talk about love. You want to talk about somebody who's going to sit there and answer your questions and actually have a ball doing it. And that's what real mentoring, real leadership, real role models are about. And yet, your, you know, kids plug in, get plugged into their iPhones and they're listening to... Digital music. It's not done by people. It's not being done by Cannonball or Mike Wolf or Nat Adderley. It's being done, done by an engineer. It's done by computers. How does it sound? Terrible. We'll come up and fix it. You know, and even though when you started those highlights in jazz, 
you know, you know, zoot, they might be fighting off, you know, they might be, you know, shivering with a drug addiction, they have their own evils, but you know what, they'd come up there and they'd blow from their soul, and anybody who was in the audience would be affected on a conscious level, conscious oh, level, big time. Jake, if kids could, could attend a concert, they would love it. I did a, a program for many years called Adopt-A-Class. It was set up when, uh, I forget who the mayor was, but I was with the attorney general's office at the time. And the idea was that no matter what walk of life you were with, you would spend two weeks, two hours a week with an inner city seventh grade class. And they recruited me from the attorney general's office. They, they basically asked for a volunteer. I volunteered. I thought, hey, that sounds great. And I would teach them about law. You know, we would have mock trials and you know, law that pertained to their lives and stuff like that. And it was a nice program, okay? After a couple, and people in the program included Beverly Sills, the great opera singer, Ed Koch, the former mayor, had a mm -hmm. class in Chinatown. Uh, Ellinghouse, who was the head of AT&T, had a class, was teaching them all about, you know, communications. Vetus Gerolitis, the tennis player, had a class. Uh, and whatever your skill was, you shared, okay? Now, came a time I said, you know, this is adopt a class, and yeah, I'm supposed to be teaching them about law, but a big part of my life is jazz. And I got permission to switch and teach them about jazz, and I brought Ray Barretto to school. I brought a tap dancer to school. I arranged with Lincoln Center so the kids could go to a rehearsal. And they loved it. I showed them videos, including the video of the Lee Konitz, Roy Haynes concert that people can see at YouTube. And the kids loved it. Loved it, all right? It cost the city of New York nothing. We were all volunteers. And trust me, high-level people, they definitely feels you don't get any better than that. You bring it. You're bringing. You're bringing Ray Barreto in. I mean, I would. What I would do to uh, sit there and watch Ray Barreto right. do different, right. do different uh, Afro-Cuban and bossa nova rhythms on the on the conga drum. Uh, we did better than that. We gave the kids percussion instruments to play. Unbelievable. Along with them, it was great. Now they ended the program because they felt it was taking time away from the preparation for the standardized math and reading tests. So, what we have now in New York City, of all places, you can't get music or art in a school unless you go to a specific performing arts school, like LaGuardia School for the Performing Arts, something like that. But the average middle school, high school, it's not in the curriculum anymore. Not even classical music, by the way. So, where are the kids going to hear it? Left to their own devices, their own iPads, they're not going to turn on a jazz station, with all due respect to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's the heartache of it. I have, I have kids coming out that 19, 20 years old, and they're playing for people their parents' age. And that's the audience. Yeah, and especially if you... If you, if you 
make it so that it's only specialized schools, then only yeah. there, there's only that kind of creativity going on within that school system. And I, I mean, I know many guys from you know tough single family households where they grew up, and a guy like Harvey Mason, the drummer. I mean, he uh-huh. uh, he told me straight out. He goes, Jake, I wouldn't be anywhere today without the instruction that I got in my music programs at, at, in the public school system because I was a, I, I came from my mother raised eight kids, and without the, that and without that that stepping ladder, without that without that leadership, without that mentorship, you know, and then the ability to be able to go and play with George Shearing and to be able to go, right. and, and, you know, and that was it, it, and 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 so there are things that are hindering. The younger, there, it, it's we've identified several problems here. I mean, it's 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 uh, as Mike Longo, the piano player, says, it's a supply and demand issue. Tremendous players, not enough places to, to hear the music. And I I think you know it's, it's it's equivalent to the law schools. They're turning out more and more and more law students, and I'm sure they're bright. I'm sure they're capable. There's no job. No jobs. The music schools. I I get tapes from kids in. Manhattan School of Music or the New School or Juilliard and the fantastic talent out there but where they're going to play where's the audience and you know you're right it's supply and demand if if you, <coughs> going back to the um, can you talk about the support you got from Guys who were involved with, like we talked about before, the the, the Latin scene. The, the 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 there was a, a great uh, label called the Fania label. Oh, okay. Ralph Mercado, who grew up in the Bronx, not far from me, and originally owned a bowling alley. And uh, but I mean, how important was it to get the support from minority leaders? Because the, the blending of that just filled right into the Klein Singer methodology. That was very helpful. That was very helpful, and. Uh, you know, I knew Ralph. Uh, Ralph was a rough guy, but uh, his heart was in the right place. And uh, Ray Barreto, I, I took Ray to Berlin. I was asked to bring a highlights and jazz group to the Berlin Jazz Festival in the 80s. So I brought a group I called Battle of the Big Horns, four baritone saxophones. You got a picture of this. Uh, Ronnie Cuban, Nick Brignola, Cecil Payne, Howard Johnson. That's that. That's and a rhythm that, section with oh, man. Junior Mance, Rufus Reed, a drummer Walter Bolden, who had played with Lambert Hendricks, of course, and Ray Burrell. And Ray, at the time of his life, because it wasn't a Latin gig, he he loved playing mainstream. He played with Dexter. He played with Stanley Turrentine. He played, you know, he he preferred a show that wasn't a Latin show. Mm. And uh, Tito Puente was another guy. Ray once uh, had to cancel on a show with me called Accent on Percussion, and uh, I was furious. I said, how can you do this to me? We batted on He said, I'll send a sub. I said, who are you going to send, Tito Puente? He said, yeah, I'll, I'll send Tito. <laughs> and, he, and he did. Tito came at yeah. the time of his life, did three shows with me after that, with, played with people like Phil Woods and uh, John Faddis, Ray Bryant, Frank West. At the time of his life, and he didn't have to be a leader. You know, he was perfectly happy to be part of it. Now, do I just let them go on stage and look at each other and say, uh, "What are we going to play now?" No, no, I've, I've structured my concerts. Uh, I don't call the tunes, but I 
know when there's going to be a ballad. I know when there's going to be a piano feature. I know when the surprise guest is coming up, and uh, and it works. Why do you but, think? Uh, why do you think you you uh, you know from the from the from the you know way back in '73 with. Joe Beck, Joe Farrell, Herb Bushler, and and uh, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Madison. Why, you know, why do you, why do you feel you connected on a spiritual level with these guys as a non-musician? Because you know, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. They, I, I always wanted to be in show business. I was a ham. Uh, when I was thirteen and a half, I ran away, and I was heading to Hollywood with. <laughs> the addresses of all the Hollywood studios. Now, I had no talent at all that I know of. Uh, and I was convinced that all I had to do was present myself and, you know, get a job. I got as far as Chicago and uh, turned back. Uh, it's a funny story because my parents didn't even know I was gone. Uh, it, was, it was a weekend. I <laughs> thought I was uh, going to one of my friends' house for the weekend. Sunday night, they found out I was gone. But, uh, you know, I always wanted to be part of that. And jazz musicians, when I was growing up, were among the most colorful people in the world. I mean, more than baseball players, even. And I love baseball players. But uh, Cat Calloway, Roy Eldridge, they they were larger than life in everything suit. Uh, They were characters. Uh, and th- that part of it appealed to me probably as much as the music. Uh, they just—they were so much fun, and uh, part of the part of the joy over the last forty years has been being part of that world. And I've become a character myself, but uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie. My, my cat is named for Dizzy. When Dizzy heard that I had a cat named Dizzy, he had to come over to see the cat, you know. He was talking to him. Uh, Clark Terry. Uh, these, these guys are fantastic. And they were entertainers, too. Yeah, they didn't just stand up there and, and blow their horns. Well, it seemed like uh, they uh, they actually, in a lot of ways, um, allowed you to... to, to uh, Evolve into the uh, the charismatic entertainer that you always wanted to be. Um, well, they're, they're, I, yeah. I'm getting this year the 2013 Bistro Award, which is quite an honor for outstanding music series. And uh, when they sent the announcement, 99% of their awards go to performers. Maurice Hines is getting the award, Lainey Kazan, people like that. Uh, in the jazz, the cabaret, the comedy field. And they said that recipients are invited to perform. Uh, I don't think they meant recipients of an award like our comedy. Jake, can I just take a see who this call is and I'll get rid of them? No problem. Okay. Uh, we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the series on Valentine's Day. And uh, the Bistro Award is, is exciting because, uh, among other things, it's going to give me a chance to talk and tell some musician stories, which I've got. I have had more fun than anybody that attends my concerts. And I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. Uh, It's 314 shows and counting. And uh, I I can't thank people like you for the support and the encouragement. Uh, you, You really... You know, there are times you say to yourself, is it worth doing this? Is it worth keeping doing it, the audience is dwindling, blah, 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 and then uh, I meet somebody with 
your enthusiasm, and I know it's worthwhile. Well, you have been uh, a conduit uh, to the growth of, of my uh, evolution as a, as a journalist, as a broadcaster, and as a, you know, and to be able to find myself through these larger-than-life individuals uh, and I can't thank you enough. Ironically enough, you're at 314. My birthday is March 14, 314. So, Whoa. so we will. We have a concert March 14. Swing Memories, <laughs> Body Show with Strings, a 25 piece band that includes Wycliffe Gordon, Howard Alden, Warren Vachet, and led by the Anderson twins, who graduated from Juilliard about two, three years ago, identical twins who both play clarinet. So, uh, well, we, we're we, we are gonna, so we'll celebrate your birthday. Well, and, and, and Jack, uh, uh, you know, continued success. I think the, one of the most important things that you, are, you can continue to do in this next chapter of your promotional, promoting career is just continue the, the, building those links in the fence between the older generations and the newer generations and allowing more opportunities for those guys to intermesh and collaborate because at the end of the day, they're the ones that live through the this rich period of time that we so love that I didn't live through, but uh-huh. you, but you did. So as you continue uh, continue to be inventive, continue to be creative, continue to fast. Jake, I really want to do a part two with you. Of course we will, Jack. And and uh, it was an honor to talk to you, part one, and we'll do a part two real soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Take thank care, you, sir. Give me the chance to mouth off. And <laughs> I had a ball. We'll do it again soon. Great. Take care, Jeff. Have a great day. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye.